Hello and welcome to Queer as Fiction. My name is Eli. And I'm Jason. This is the first in our little series of extra episodes for Queer as Fact. And on these ones, we're going to be talking about the intersection of history and queerness in the media. Today, we're talking about Jay Sheridan Le Fanu's 1872 lesbian vampire novella, Carmilla. As ever, we have some content warnings for this episode. In it, we mention the general oppression of the Irish by the English in the 19th century, including mentions of famine. We also talk about the possessive and unhealthy dynamics between Laura and Carmilla, pretty much just what you would expect of a relationship with a vampire in it. We also briefly touch on the issue of sexual assault on college campuses later in the episode when we talk a little bit about the web series Carmilla. There are also a couple of brief mentions of incest, as well as the sexism that comes along with a 19th century novel. If any of that sounds like something that you'd rather not listen to, feel free to skip this one. But otherwise, let's get started on Carmilla. Carmilla was originally serialized in the literary magazine The Dark Blue over 1871 to 1872. Wow, that sounds very modern. Like, the name, like a literary magazine named Dark Blue and it being serialized. That was quite a common thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like. I was always aware that like writers were being paid by the page, and that a lot of work was serialized. But I never really thought about the fact that they would have been literary magazines. Mm. Um, yeah, it's funny because to me, saying something was serialized in a literary magazine sounds very like nineteenth-century old-fashioned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in eighteen seventy-two, it was published in a collection of short stories and novellas called *In a Glass Darkly*, which is a very cool title, in my opinion. Yeah, it just sounds very cool. There are some changes between the two. We'll talk about them a bit later. Mm. But first, we're going to talk about the plot. Most of the things we're going to be talking about on this show Uh are reasonably old. But even if it's not old, we are still going to spoil it. Yeah. Um, We're not going to do any kind of, like, spoiler-free section and then a spoiler section. We're just... Like, I'm literally about to describe the plot to you beat for beat. So if you'd rather read Carmilla first. It's only 90 pages. Yeah, it's it's a very short book. I was very pleasantly surprised. (laughs) So, the protagonist of our story is a young woman called Laura, no last name, who lives with her father, no first name, (laughs) in an isolated castle in Styria, which is a real place. Like Transylvania, people think it's not a real place. Oh, I, yeah, I'll be honest. I knew that Transylvania was a real place. I was not, like... It's not a country. Yeah, okay. But it's a real place. Yeah, anyway, so, Laura, when she was six... A very beautiful woman came into her bedroom and she was very happy and then the woman bit her really hard and ran away. And Laura remembers (laughs) this very vividly. And now Laura is 18 and she is excited for her friend to come and visit her, but then she hears her friend has mysteriously died. And she's thinking, I wish I had a friend and then a friend crashes her carriage into... Well, not into anything in particular. (laughs) Yeah, into the side of the road. Into the side of the road. (laughs) And in that carriage is a woman and her daughter, Carmilla. And Carmilla is unwell, but the woman has to be somewhere right now immediately. So Carmilla is left with the, there's no surname, with Laura and her father to recover for a while. With the castle. With the castle. (laughs) Does the castle have a name? Uh, no. Oh. I don't think so. Yeah. It's, they just really like to make sure they don't translate the word schloss a lot. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's just referred to as the schloss a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, Schloss is German for castle. <laughs> so they become very close, almost gaily close. <laughs> but Carmilla is 
really quite weird. She won't pray and she sleeps in. This is very sinister, but it's also just like... <laughs> but it's also just like, oh yeah, okay, so Carmilla is a time traveler. That's the plot twist, guys. Yeah. Spoilers. And also girls in the area begin to die. And then a restored painting of Laura's ancestor Mercala is delivered and it looks exactly like Carmilla. I wonder how Mercala is spelled. <laughs> Humble <laughs> listeners, you may want to check this um, and see if you can decipher the plot. Laura has dreams of a big black cat standing over her bed and her health starts to decline and a doctor comes and looks at her. So he's the first of like 17 authoritative white men who show up in the last 30 pages. (laughs) Yeah, this book is structured very strangely. And then Laura and her father decide to go to the nearby ruined village where the Karnstein family used to live. And on the way they meet General Spielsdorf, who is the father of... Laura's friend who died, and he tells them that his daughter met a girl called Malaka at a ball, <laughs> and her mother had been sick and had to run off, and mm. she was left with them, and then the daughter died with the same symptoms as Laura now has. And he realized that Malaka was a vampire. So they go and they try to find Malaka's tomb, but it's been moved. And then Carmilla shows up and the general attacks her with an axe because, spoilers, you know, she's Malaka. (laughs) Malaka and Carmilla and Marcella. They're all the same person, guys. That's probably, like, as many ways you can convincingly make that into a name. I'm sure you could do something like, like, I'm not going to actually get this correct because I don't, like, have all the letters in front of me, but, like, Armalak or something like that. You know, with an A. Yeah. I know there's two A's. It could be, like... Um, Kala. Yeah, okay, you're right. Actually, these are I, bad. I feel like alliteration. Malaka was pushing it. Yeah, anagrams. That's the word. Yes, and then Baron von Vordenberg shows up, who is an expert on vampires, and he has secret ancient knowledge. And they find the tomb, and the body is exhumed, and it's immersed in blood and still breathing. So they cut its head off, and and there's a scream. And she screams, yeah. And it's Carmilla. Shock. Yeah. And Laura's father decides to take her on a trip so she can kind of get over that, but she doesn't ever get over that. And sometimes she thinks she can still hear Carmilla outside of her room. And that's the end. And it's all told from the perspective of Dr. Heselius. Yeah. <laughs> it does have this interesting framing device where all of the five stories that are in Inner Glass Darkly are, mm. like, allegedly case studies from the posthumous papers of the occult detective Dr. Martin Heselius. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So it's a whole collection of stories yeah. from his writings. Yes. So it has that, like, you know, this is a true story sort of <laughs> feel to it. I really love that he couldn't come up with a better occulty sounding first name than Martin for yeah. his fake doctor. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk about, like, themes and genres and gay. But first, just what was your general impression of this book? Did you like it? Did you hate it? I did quite like it. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's very quaint. From the little bit of reading I did, it seems like it was kind of new to have a twist and have characters not aware of what was happening. But, like, you know, the fact that the audience is aware pretty much from the start. Like, it's it's not a spoiler to say that Carmela is a vampire even before someone has read this book because it is very, very apparent to a modern reader. And, I, I mean, maybe it was less apparent 
to an uh, yeah. to a reader during the time that that's, she was a vampire immediately. Yeah. That's something that I wanted to talk to you about because I generally don't really know. This is definitely part of the like first wave of modern vampire novels. So mm. things like this and Dracula and John Polidori is a vampire yeah. are really like setting the normal tropes of what a vampire novel is. Yeah. Uh, so we know that like Carmilla is a vampire before we start the novel, mm. and they wouldn't have had like 150 years of Camilla being name dropped and things Mm. to go off of. I don't really know. And I wanted to talk to you about that, like when the reader is meant to know, because obviously once we're at like, Oh, I met this other girl at a ball and she was a vampire. Like the pennies dropped, but I'm not sure at what point, like, I'm not sure if the conceit of the novel is that the reader gradually finds out that Carmilla is a vampire Mm. or that like we know from the get-go that she's a vampire or from quite early on that she's a vampire and the horror is in knowing while the characters don't know yeah I feel like it must be the second one because it is just so like every single moment with Carmilla is like very suspicious Mm. yeah it's all what a crazy random happenstance your carriage crashed into the side for no real reason and this is all very like suspicious like it obviously sets her up as being a sinister presence in the house yeah and then you know whilst obviously vampire fiction Mm -hmm. as a kind of codified thing wasn't necessarily Mm -hmm. present there's certainly like the idea of a vampire a vampire or creatures that suck blood from people and are kind of otherworldly and don't get up during the day and are somewhat like you know a religious a religious um or anti-religious yeah (laughs) um surely like definitely existed in people's minds and so yeah I know that people reading it today, because I went and, like, read all of the Goodreads reviews and things like that (laughs) to try to get a sense of, like, the modern feeling about this book, is that, like, the characters are stupid and it's obvious and there's the assumption that it wasn't meant to be obvious or something like that. Yeah, I mean, to me, it it doesn't seem obvious at all, like, from the character's perspective. Yeah, I mean, they... So, okay, so we have 150 years of vampire tropes that they don't have. And I think where we are with horror right now is that we can't write not self-aware horror anymore. Yeah. Like, Scream got four movies. (laughs) Um, True facts. And Laura just doesn't know the genre she's in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, Whereas, like, the, the, like, five white men are just dumb. Mm, to some extent yeah to some extent like yeah. they are like we'll get into themes and stuff, <laughs> but i think they are deliberately a little bit meant to be kind of dumb for yeah. a while yeah we'll move on i wanted to ask you how you felt about the pacing because that was the other big thing that people complained about that i saw that it was like far too slow and i didn't find it to be that at all yeah no i absolutely i quite enjoyed the very deliberate kind of building up of the mm. relationship between uh, laura and camilla mm-hmm. and how it's slowly developed the idea that Laura was sort of becoming infatuated with her, but simultaneously sort of figuring out that she was not very good for her health. I feel like there's a lot of it is just that, like, slow build of a relationship, but there's enough just, like, actual plot events that happen as well. Yeah, yeah, and there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely some plot events. I I think there's probably too many... plot events and certainly too many like weird coincidences and characters rocking up at exactly the right time in the last, you know, 20 pages. Um, yeah, the last 20 pages just go, like, hell for leather. Yeah, which is, like, bizarre, but also, like... I mean, I guess I guess if you're going to have a 90-page book, mm. then I prefer what we got over 
like 20 pages being taken out of the relationship dynamic and being mm. put into actually establishing Spilsdorf and Vordenberg yeah. and like all of the stuff that's going on. I mean, Spielberg, Spielberg, Spielsdorf <laughs> gets, I feel, enough description of what's yeah. happening with him and he gets enough of a like coherent character. Mm. Vordenberg, I was just kind of confused by. I genuinely didn't really get who he was. I had to like reread that whole yeah. passage and be like, oh, okay, so he's this guy and he has this weird, like, ancient connection with Carmilla and the Carnsteins and yeah, it was bizarre. I saw a comment a couple of times that I really liked that was people saying he's just a Van Helsing ripoff, which I thought was hilarious because this is published 25 years before. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. Van Helsing is a... <laughs> is a Vordenberg. Baron Vordenberg ripoff. <laughs> oh, Baron Vordenberg, the OG. I, I am sad for him that he never got to be played by Hugh Jackman. <laughs> Hugh Jackman's still alive. Yeah, true, true. Yeah. So was the framing device just kind of confusing to you without the like wider context of the rest of the collection of stories, or was it pretty... Fine. No, I felt like that was fine. I mean, it you know, uh, having also read Frankenstein, yeah, which has the same yes. framing device. Yeah, I really, really like it. Not because I feel like it actually like does that much for the story or anything like that, but because mm. I think it's this thing that we're still doing in horror today, where like the Blair Witch starts with like these are real tapes. Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. It, it is definitely something that's kind of carried on into yeah. horror, and then yeah, like found footage movies, mm. and like we're still doing those. But yeah, I just like that kind of human impulse to kind of be like, but wouldn't it be scarier if this was like quasi vaguely a real thing? Yeah. yeah, 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 and you know, kind of yeah, trying to have a framing device to kind of make the unreality of what's actually then going to happen a little bit kind of. But this mm. is a story being told to you that is true. Mm. Jay Sheridan Lafanu wrote just tons. He was a very prolific writer and he wrote in a lot of genres, but he's best known for his gothic fiction and his horror and his mystery novels. So gothic fiction has been around for a while by the time Carmilla is written. It originated in the late 18th and early 19th centuries with its like first wave. Mm -hmm. uh, it's generally said to have started with Horace Walpole's The Castle of Taranto. The genre deals with horror and romance and the supernatural. It's a genre to which setting is very, very key. So it's that like classic setting of like the old castle on the hill with trap doors and clanking chains and mm. secret passages and things like that. Um, Mysterious cellars. Yeah. Yeah. Someone crying in the attic in the middle of the night and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Like weird drips. And there's a whole lot of elements that are common to this, but a few that are in Carmilla are the, like, the damsel in distress figure and just emotional and psychological extremes and exploring quote-unquote deviant forms of sexuality. Mm. So sometimes queer stuff is here, but also sometimes incest is here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a bit unfortunate that those two things get kind of conflated. Yes. So once you start reading Carmilla, it starts with her description, Laura's description of Styria as this like lonely primitive place in which she lives in this massive castle and you're like oh yes i'm in a gothic novel yeah absolutely it's also more obviously as we've already touched on an early example of the vampire genre and camilla today i think is kind of known for two things and one of those things is that it's gay as hell and the other thing is that it had this massive influence on dracula mm. and dracula is obviously the one we've decided is like the canonical vampire novel so there's a lot of things in camilla that people kind of claim that Bram Stoker just kind of directly like took and put in Dracula. So the thing with the teeth being described as very needle-like and the descriptions of the vampire bite, 
the gradual wasting away of the victims, the team of men who come together at the end to save a female victim, first person narration and framing it as like a real thing that happened, the aesthetic of the female vampire, tons of things like that are all in Dracula as well. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a long Mm. list of things. (laughs) Yeah. There's also, he wrote an like extra story that we think was meant to be the first chapter of Dracula before he realized it didn't really need to be there in which the main character literally comes across a grave of a female vampire that talks about how she died in Styria. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, this sounds like a very very deliberate... And then he cut that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit awkward to cut that kind of homage and then... Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, it's not Bram Stoker's fault that Dracula has become the canonical vampire text, but that is a bit sad. Yeah. uh, There's also other things that people assign to Camilla's influence in Dracula, such as it being in an Eastern European setting, at least for the first act. Mm. Uh, and then like a ruined castle or a very old kind of shabbily kept castle at least and a seductive predatory aristocrat and naive virgin females and things like that and I think actually that assigning that just to him copying Camilla is a bit too simplistic at that point I think that it's this kind of like wider evolution of a genre and of vampire tropes in particular yeah I mean those kind of things strike me as particularly the kind of um, aristocrat preying on the sort of virginal heroine Mm -hmm. or you know young person person certainly that's not something that's limited to vampire novels no it's not even something that's limited to fiction (laughs) but also even just with vampire novels john polidori's the vampire came out in 1819 which is like a lot earlier than camilla Mm. and it has some of those elements it's about a suave nobleman who preys on a defenseless woman the penny dreadful series varney the vampire which is absolutely dreadful (laughs) i've read I mean, that definitely, Varney the Vampire sounds like a comedy in a modern context. (laughs) Like, that's absolutely what it would be. It would be like, you know, the Count from Sesame Street. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, that Penny Dreadful is generally understood to have introduced uh, a lot of the tropes to the vampire genre, such as vampires having fangs. Right, yeah, Yeah. okay. So I think that even though Camilla obviously did have a direct influence on it, it's more complicated than just Bram Stoker, like, took a bunch of stuff from Camilla. There's already, like, a vampire genre that is existing. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's generally how those kind of things go, right? Mm-hmm. It's very rare for one creative artist to come up with all of the major trappings mm-hmm. of a genre or yeah. a thing or even an invention, if we're talking about, like, outside of artistic pursuits. It's much more common for elements of these things to be brought together. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's why, you know, whilst, you know, we can say, oh, maybe it's a bit unfair that Bram Stoker's Dracula gets hailed where Camilla does not, it's kind of hailing either one of them as the birth of the modern vampire novel is kind of a little bit over the top anyway. And I think it's it's too much even just to say that, like, these novels collectively invented the vampire genre because they're definitely pulling from folklore, which we can't ever trace back to an originator anyway yeah so it's almost like that's how human knowledge works <laughs> uh, i was also just gonna say like speaking of vampire novels that look like they were influenced by camilla mm-hmm. i really really laughed at that bit in camilla where laura is like i only knew three things about her because it reminded me like directly of the blow of twilight <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I have definitely I've read the first Twilight book, and it was yeah. a long time ago. So, does the blurb of Twilight do this thing? So Laura's like, what she did tell me amounted, in my unconscionable estimation, to nothing. It was all summed up in three very vague disclosures. First, her name was Carmilla. Second, her family was very ancient and noble. Third, her home lay in the direction of the West. And the Twilight blurb says, About three things I was absolutely positive. First, Edward was a vampire. Second, there was a part of him, and I didn't know how dominant that part might be, that thirsted for my blood. And third, I was unconditionally and irrevocably in love with him. Oh, wow, yeah. (laughs) That is quite funny. And I laughed a lot. Yeah. So I don't think there's any actual connection there, but it's a hilarious coincidence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Stephanie Meyer kind of... Like, maybe not even deliberately, but I'm sure she'd read Carmilla. I'm not. Oh, really? No, not at all. Okay. Maybe. I mean, maybe. The thing about gothic fiction Mm -hmm. is that people can read a lot of stuff into it because it's, like, very kind of high drama and very evocative and provocative themes. Mm -hmm. And it's all kind of mysterious and jumbled. Okay. So you can just kind of run with that. And that's not to say that, like, any of the stuff I'm about to talk about is just people reading into it and it's not there. But I'm just saying that you can find people finding a lot of themes and stuff, and we're only going to talk about a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, so we're not yes. going into the like really crazy conspiracy theory territory here. <laughs> so we're going to talk about how this novel deals with 19th century Ireland. Okay, and... I was not aware that it dealt with 19th century Ireland, so <laughs> I'm fair, intrigued. Because Ireland is never mentioned in this novel, and it is not set in Ireland, and no and... one is Irish in it. Yeah, like it's, it's you know, he's... They're, they're in Styria. Yes. Which is part of the Austrian Empire. Yes. And he's English. Who's English? The father. Yes. And everyone else is... Styrian. Styrian, I guess. Yes. Nevertheless, the scholar Robert Tracy has straight up said that Camilla is set in Styria, but it is nevertheless a story about Anglo-Irish anxiety. Okay. Are you ready? <laughs> I am so ready. So... Jay Sheridan Lafanu is from an Anglican family, but he is Irish. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go back to the 16th and 17th centuries. Okay, yeah. Uh, when a lot of English Protestants were settling in Ireland. Yes, okay, I'm aware mm. of that as a conceptual thing that happened. Yep, By which I mean a, an actual thing that happened, <laughs> not a concept. Uh, for about 100 years, they maintained this very clear claim to English identity and ethnicity and culture. They very much conceptualize themselves as Englishmen. Yeah. You have a situation where there are these, like, Englishmen living in Ireland, and the Irish view them as English, and the English view them as Irish. Yes. And it's a time. Yeah. They don't really belong. So, Ireland and vampirism were also kind of linked in the media, and they were also both articulated in terms of disease and terror in the media. So you have satirical magazines like Punch and the Tomahawk depicting advocates for Irish home rule as vampires preying on Ireland. Right, okay. So so this is something that within Ireland, Irish people were portraying. No, no. no English people are portraying people, Irish people advocating for Irish home rule as vampires who are destroying Ireland. Right, I mean, like, that doesn't make any sense, but also, like... But it's English talking about Ireland. Yeah, so it's the... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Controversial opinions. And... The author himself also wrote about Irish issues, mm. uh, and sometimes he did this in the lens of gothic fiction, and sometimes he did it by creating these monsters that were clearly Catholics. Yeah, okay. So a lot of the analysis of Cum Miller as a text about 
Irishness Mm -hmm. focuses on Laura's nationality and her ethnicity. Yeah. Because she is the daughter, as we said, of a Styrian mother and an English father. Mm. And the text, because of this mixed heritage, explores these kind of themes of them being isolated and abandoned uh, out in the middle of Styria. And they have this desire to retain certain customs and certain identity for themselves. Okay, yeah, I see how this fits in now to English settlers in Ireland being Mm -hmm. ostensibly preyed upon by Irish people. Yeah, it's also made explicit in the text, in the funeral rites, for the random dead young girls in the surrounding countryside, Mm -hmm. that the surrounding villages are Catholic. So Laura and her father are this, like, isolated little family unit in this mm-hmm. sea of Catholics. Okay, yep. <laughs> yeah. So according to this reading, the figure of Carmilla is generally read as representing the attack on these isolated, anxious Anglicans as they perceive themselves by this resurgent Catholic aristocracy. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. I mean, I guess that's kind of the point, but like having it be like teen lesbian vampires... <laughs> Um, is, like, an interesting way to go about your (laughs) political commentary. So Carmilla's tomb, when they eventually find it, reads 1698, which was the year the Catholic clergy were ordered to leave Ireland, and it served as a symbolic death year of Catholic Ireland. Mm. Wow, this is some good history. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, so she's this remnant of the old Catholic past come to attack the supremacy of the Anglo-Protestant Irish present. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's definitely, you know, a sort of undercurrent of Laura and her father's kind of supremacy over the sort of villagers in terms of they, you know, they definitely portray themselves as being sort of more advanced and more... We drink tea and live in a schloss. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they live in the schloss. No one else gets to live in the schloss. (laughs) They're in fact, yeah, because they're like the nearest schloss is um, Filsdorf, I think, maybe. I have no idea where Spilsdorf lives. (laughs) I I think there's there's definitely a line about, like, the nearest castle. Like, the nearest, like... And I think even the way Laura describes it kind of supports what's being said here, where I think Laura's kind of like, well, the nearest, like, you know, castle. Yeah, the nearest real people, the nearest real place to live, as opposed to, like, these villages full Mm. of, like... The other... People, I guess. Like, the only other quote-unquote castle that is nearby is the ruined... Constantine Castle, oh, which is yeah, what yeah. I was thinking of, but like, yeah, that yeah, doesn't yeah. count because no one lives there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the nearest inhabited castle. Yeah. It's also worth noting in terms of Camilla being metaphorically Catholic Ireland that Irish famine victims were often described in very similar terms to how Camilla is described as these kind of like wasting away, very like languid mm. figures who weren't able to really do much without being exhausted, and also sometimes explicitly as walking corpses. Wow. Okay. Yes. And Ireland itself is described as being this, like, diseased body Mm. in 19th century English texts. And there's similarly a lot of discussion about vampirism in the text as being this, like, epidemic and this infection of superstition and things. Yeah, okay, wow. This is not where I was expecting this conversation to go. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I was like, yeah, okay, this is kind of, like, a fairly, like, you know, somewhat intense novel within the text, but, like... Thematically simple? Thematically simple, but no... (laughs) Gothic fiction doesn't allow that. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. It should also be noted, however, that by the time Camilla is written, there's a more complicated relationship going on between Irish Protestants and Ireland Mm. than there originally had been. So, like, originally they maintained this very, like, separate English identity. Mm -hmm. And by the 19th century, that started to break down. 
Uh, so many of them had married into Irish Catholic families, including Joseph Sheridan Lefani's family. Okay. Some of these people are now Irish nationalists. Also, 18th century Irish Protestants apparently tried to establish uh, that they had like long-standing connections with Ireland and had these kind of convoluted arguments to suggest that Protestantism was actually more Irish than Catholicism. Yeah, look. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not going to tell you them because they're, they're, they're dumb. Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. not any good. It involved arguing that like Protestantism had been there before Protestantism existed. That, that so, sounds super legit. Yeah, we don't need to spend time on that. No. There also is building off that, this other reading in which Camilla herself is a stand-in for the author's Anglo-Irish experience, because she is also kind of caught between worlds in terms of kind of being dead and kind of being alive. Yeah, okay. Mm. And I mean, you know, like Laura certainly has conflicted feelings about Camilla. Mm. Yeah. And, and so- even even before she is... A vamp- like, apparently a vampire. Yeah. And so that would kind of tie in with the author having had conflicted feelings about yeah. Ireland and Irish yes. identity. Uh, and it should also just be noted that Camilla specifically denounces Catholicism in the text and declares that she's an atheist. So that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, that's like what you were saying before about leaving open the capacity for multiple readings and mm. having a kind of sprawling, convoluted... Yeah. Thematic message that is sort of sometimes self contradictory. Yeah, I don't know how like conscious a theme this was in this novel, this whole mm. island business. I feel like it might be a slightly neater one if it had been an, a deliberate Yeah, I mean it may have been, you know, a sort of commentary to some extent on that kind of cultural perception of like what you were saying before about the kind of visual metaphors of Irish people wasting mm-hmm. away and being kind of walking corpses and that kind of thing without necessarily trying to make a coherent argument. Yeah, I mean, I think even it could just be that he, you know, is living in this atmosphere and so these are the images that he's internalising. Yeah, they're coming out just, yeah, they're just coming out in fiction yeah. rather than necessarily him trying to. I mean, it, it, it's certainly not a novel about its ideas. The other theme I wanted to touch on real quickly was the idea of the increasing popularity of vampire novels in the 19th century being a response to the kind of like increasing rise of scientific thought as opposed to folklore. Yeah, that's definitely something that sort of is present in the framing device Uh and then kind of, I feel kind of from memory gets brought up a little bit again at the yeah. end of the novel and isn't really present throughout the text but is um something yeah that is kind of interesting in that respect i think it's it's present in her father i think mm, oh true uh, yeah because her father very much talks about like the like all of the you know villages around them are worried about vampires and he's like no no that's just them infecting themselves with fear there's a scientific explanation for this but then he can't like really help her yeah, no, true. When his That's, own daughter starts uh, yeah. And then his sort of whole interaction with Spielsdorf. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also when the doctor eventually kind of is like, well, yeah, it's a vampire. <laughs> and he's kind of like, well, okay, now that the man of science has said it. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty hilarious to me how you have all of these like elderly white men show up and there's like a doctor, a father, a military man. 
It's like, just like what like kind of like male realms of authority exist, because we're going to get a representative of every single one of them. And they're all going to be quite incompetent. And they're going to be very interchangeable, and then they're going to save her. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I just wanted to mention that briefly, uh, and now we can talk about gay things. Hey, time for the gay. Yes. <laughs> I want to talk both about how this deals with queerness and how it deals with gender, and I don't think you can really separate those. Yeah, absolutely. No. No. So, first of all, I just wanted to talk about how we've said that Camilla is part of this defining wave of vampire novels that really define the tropes of the genre, Mm -hmm. but I also wanted to mention that she is very different from, like, the archetypal male vampire who is being established at this time. Yeah. So, a vampire like Dracula tends to operate via very direct aggression, whether it's, like, just physical strength or because of wealth and influence and things like that Mm -hmm. but Camilla doesn't attack Laura so much through that she's got this more like insidious method of like integrating herself into the household and I was gonna say she plays this role of being like this very weak victim and whatnot and I actually have no idea if she's actually like very weak throughout this novel or if she's faking that yeah, it's a bit unclear. I mean, I guess she is weak for parts of the novel, and then she gets a victim, and then she is no longer weak. Yeah, like, that makes sense, but I don't feel like that pattern is actually evidenced in the novel if you, like, pay attention to that. Because it's not like she's having these sudden bursts of, like, of for a few days she was yeah. fine and she climbed a mountain. Yeah, true. And I mean, that's kind of a, a little bit of a function of the fact that the story is them being in the schloss. Yeah. And they're not really doing much. Mm. And she's... And I mean, I suppose she's ostensibly sick anyway, so she ostensibly shouldn't be just getting better out of the blue yeah. for periods of time. So I guess she's faking it sometimes, and maybe sometimes it's a little bit more real. Yeah. But in any case, she very much comes off as, like, the typical victim herself. Mm, true, yeah. You know, like, she's quite similar to Laura in that she's just kind of very weak and pale and can't really do very much. Yeah. Also, I mean, I think the, like, pithiest encapsulation of this is that Camilla turns into a cat, whereas Dracula turns into a dog. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, she gets to be a big cat. Yes. (laughs) But, yeah, that is very kind of aggressively gendered. Female vampires grow in popularity from this point, at least partially just because of this story. And that's often understood as a response to social anxieties again but this time about women and the suffragettes movement how overt would you say this is as a piece of gay media not the most okay so whilst Camilla's feelings for laura strike me as very predatorial and kind of based on her need for victims it yeah it very much does also draw the kind of direct comparison where she wasn't interested in her previous victims and she is interested mm. in her. And that definitely comes across as fairly explicitly romantic. Yeah. And or, and or at least sexual in nature. Yeah, I was going to say I think it's quite explicitly sexual. I'll quickly just mention in order to dismiss that the kind of one alternative theory that kind of gained a little bit of traction in scholarship was that Camilla played a mother role to Laura instead of a sexual or romantic role. It's nonsense. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, like, let's be clear. I'm, I'm very much, you know, my only hesitance is in terms of how Laura feels about mm. Camilla rather than in how Camilla feels about Laura is very... Yeah, like, it's very sexual, it's very... You know, she's infatuated with her, and she wants her, and mm-hmm. she, you know, physically goes after her, and yes, bites her, and, you know, it's... Yeah, like, <laughs> you, you don't... Like, you know, vampires biting people is almost always 
got some kind of sexual subtext to it, and this is, like, ramped up to 11. <laughs> it probably is worth just making clear on the motherhood thing that, like, it's nonsense. But Camilla is Laura's ancestor. They are related. Yeah, true. Yes. So <laughs> um, that exists. I mean, we're, we're kind of circling back around to the idea of incest and queerness mm. being conflated in these kind of, you know, sort Just of horrific of... alternate forms of relationships yeah. being portrayed in yes. gothic literature. So I was going to read a quote from one of their, like, makeout sessions, just to kind of make <laughs> the tone of the relationship clear to people who might not have... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. might not this. have read it or might not have read it recently. Yeah. So this is from Laura's point of view, as, like, everything is. Yeah. So she says, Sometimes after an hour of apathy, my strange and beautiful companion would take my hand and hold it with a fond pressure, renewed again and again, blushing softly, gazing in my face with languid and burning eyes, and breathing so fast that her dress rose and fell with the tumultuous respiration. It was like the ardour of a lover. It embarrassed me, it was hateful and yet overpowering. And with gloating eyes she drew me to her, and her hot lips travelled along my cheek in kisses, and she would whisper almost in sobs, You are mine, you shall be mine, you and I are one forever. So that's gay. Yeah, yeah, that is that is very explicitly gay. And I think, yeah, the way that Laura talks about that mm. is very much... She's aware of the feelings that Carmilla has for her to some extent in yeah. that scene. You know, she explicitly compares it to yeah. the ardour of a lover. But it's, yeah, it's kind of unclear to what extent Laura kind of reciprocates mm. those feelings. She seems to at times and not at others. Yeah, I, like I think her response to it is just fundamentally ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of a function of, you know, Carmilla is allowed to be more explicitly queer. Yes. Because she is the villain and the vampire and the monster and Laura is the, you know, good Anglican girl. Oh, God. And oh, no. so <laughs> she, is not, she, she is only allowed to be ambiguously queer. Yeah. There was another part in this where Laura, she's like wondering why Carmilla acts like this towards her. And she goes, is she insane? Is she a man dressed up as a woman? And like, I don't see how you could read that and then be like, no, no, this isn't romantic or sexual. It's very clear that Carmilla Mm. doesn't view Laura in a maternal way. No. And like, you know, that I mean, that would kind of go against how she treats her victims. And Laura is very much... Her victim. victim. Yeah. And it's very clear that Laura doesn't feel about Camilla, like she doesn't feel like Camilla is a role model and she doesn't feel like Camilla is a kind of senior figure to her because she, you know, often kind of talks about how Camilla is kind of immature and talks Mm. about how she's kind of pouty and quick to anger and all of these things. And Laura's kind of making these character judgments in a way that like is very clearly, you know, about someone who you're kind of in an on and off again relationship <laughs> with. You know, it's kind of like, so I'm kind of dating this girl, but she's kind of bad. <laughs> and I don't know, like, she's she's also very pretty, though. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about how she's pretty a lot, and then also talk about how she has a dozen deep character flaws. And that's the book. <laughs> it is very much, like, the queerness in this doesn't exist alongside vampirism it's not like they're two women and then also one of them's a vampire Mm. like the gayness is the vampirism it's not like it's incidentally predatory it is within this like inherently predatory yeah yeah absolutely yeah the 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 gayness is a result of the vampirism almost Mm. it almost seems 
unclear whether or not Camilla wants or is even like potentially like able to prey on male victims like she just seems entirely disinterested in them and yeah that's never raised as a possibility yeah it's just Mm -hmm. always like she must prey on young female victims and maybe that's because she herself is a young woman and you know those are the rules i don't know (laughs) (laughs) the vampire mythology in this is quite underdeveloped (laughs) Like, yeah, that's all I it's mean, doing. And I mean, it, yeah, like, that's fair. It's a 90-page mm. book. You don't yeah. have to develop a deep and consistent vampire mythology, yeah. especially when one, you know, you're building on a canon mm. that at that point was still in its infancy. Yeah, you're only obliged to develop so much, like, groundbreaking. <laughs> yeah. But the result of that representation is this really interesting thing where some people who write about it will say that it's just expressing contemporary fears about women and their sexuality and then Mm. other people see it as a criticism of that and so you have this kind of split in the scholarship where some people are saying like no this is a really interesting like not quite a feminist text but a a text you can very easily read in a feminist way and others are being like no this is garbage yeah it's it's hard because she very clearly is spending a lot more time with Camilla and is much more reluctant to let her die compared to how she treats, you know, all of, obviously all of her other victims yeah. um, in the villages, but also uh, Bertha, who is the daughter of Spielstorff. Yeah. Where that, like, is certainly... I'm not sure if it's explicitly stated by Spielstorff, but I'm sure it is because he, like, runs through his story very thoroughly. <laughs> um, you know, there's just, like, a solid, like, ten paragraphs of that. But... <laughs> It seems like their relationship was a lot more, a lot shorter. Yeah. Compared to her relationship with Laura. And so, you know, that degree of reluctance to end that relationship kind of strikes me as something where, you know, maybe there's some extent to which her attachment to Laura was a sort of moderating force or a moderating influence upon Camilla. I don't know. I don't know if that's like a legitimate reading of that. But then, you know, that kind of paints the actions of all the men at the end of the book in a very different light. Um, yeah. If you buy that there was some degree of mutual affection between yeah. them. I think if you just ended it on the men, then it would be much less ambiguous than the actual text, which ends on Laura and her still ambiguous feelings about Camilla. Yeah, and especially the fact that she never seems to have fully recovered from mm. the relationship. And that's not only has she never kind of fully recovered from the relationship, she's never kind of fully recovered from like the absence of Camilla. Yeah. Um, the fact that she still sees her mm. or sees visions of her. Yeah. And that final scene could either be like leaving us with this kind of like almost sympathetic tender image, or it could be the equivalent of that like after credit scene where you see that the villain in a slash movie is going to come back. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's very unclear because, you know, those kind of uh, genre conventions weren't necessarily well established at that point. So it's not necessarily, we can't necessarily say, well, this is how other texts, how the contemporary texts do it. So Mm. that's what was being intended because Mm. you can't necessarily do that when you're still talking about a relatively new genre. It's a surprisingly meaty text for such a small piece of fiction yeah that yeah that is very ambiguous and it definitely does strike me as um particularly like vordenberg's entry and his kind of explanation of the history of his family and camilla and all of that it strike it it, i mean it is rushed Mm -hmm. like it unequivocally is given it occurs as we've stated several times in the last like 10 20 pages of the book and it does kind of strike me as a little bit arbitrary and it does kind of strike me as a little bit he is kind of 
bringing up one version of history mm. and not necessarily a fair version of history to some extent. Yeah. And, you know, potentially that could again, like, circle back around to kind of commentary on sort of Irish-English relationship as well in terms of, like, historical revisionism there. Mm. Um, so I don't know. Like, may, may, I may be reading way, way too deep into that. I mean, that's what scholars want you to do, so... Yeah, do so it. I'm just do doing it. what the scholars want. So all yes. you scholars out there listening... Um, <laughs> Who listen to this podcast, Yeah, all yeah. you, like, 90-year-old, like, um, you know, gothic literature scholars who are listening to this podcast, because of course you are, because yeah. where, what else would you be doing? Oh, God. Leave them alone. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed me thinking deeply about things. So that's about all I had for, like, serious business literary analysis. Yeah. Now I wanted to talk a little bit about how Carmela was received into pop culture in the modern day. Uh, just yeah. for fun. Just yeah. for fun. Oh, this is definitely, like, exciting and fun. Camilla has essentially made lesbian vampires a stock trope of the genre. And many elements of her story are just, like, mixed and matched into random vampire movies. Yeah, this was something I, you know, was not aware of before I read the book. And then as I was reading the book, was very became very acutely aware of. Oh, really? Yeah, like, I was sort of aware vaguely that there was an old text called Camilla, but mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of how, like, broadly that had spread into okay. popular culture. And it was definitely like, oh, okay, yeah, so that mo- that one movie about lesbian vampire killers. Oh, that's going to come up, don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's had several direct film adaptations, which have mostly turned down the queerness. She's also just used as a minor character or a minor villain in, like, any random vampire media. Yeah. Uh, so Kim Newman's Anno Dracula mentions Camilla as a friend of the book's vampire protagonist. Mm-hmm. So the premise of Anno Dracula, and then we'll move on immediately, yep. is that the heroes of Bram Stoker's Dracula fail to stop Dracula, and vampires kind of become integrated in and increasingly dominant in Britain. Dracula himself marries the widow Queen Victoria. Wow. Yeah, it's very good. That's a time. <laughs> His main character, Genevieve, is originally from his Warhammer novels. <laughs> yeah, this is media that exists. That's amazing. Yes. Now I'm going to have to look this up. Yeah, dude. Camille's also just name-dropped or kind of like Easter-egged a bunch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the Vampirella comics feature a villain called Le Fanu who lives in a nightclub called Camilla. <laughs> so wow. that's that. My brother's drag persona is based off of Vampirella. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful yes well like you know like vampirella or like elvira or like morticia adams but like yeah, yeah. that kind of woman yeah yes yeah there is as you said also the movie lesbian vampire killers that came out in 2009 yeah so has, have you seen this movie i have seen the first 25 minutes of this movie yeah so that movie like for a movie that has the word lesbian in the title uh-huh. has like from memory like, the movie's probably, like, 80 minutes or 90 minutes, uh-huh. and I reckon there's about a minute or two of lesbianism in that movie. It is, like, disappointingly straight, even when I was, like, a proto-human who <laughs> was not on top of queer issues. I was like, yeah. wow, that's, like, not a lot of gay. Yeah. So, the premise of that movie is that these two guys whose lives aren't going that well go on a holiday and they end up in this town where all of these hot backpacker girls are being turned into lesbian vampires by Camilla and then they have to kill her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a whole, like, thing with a prophecy as well. Oh, um, it's, it's a bad movie. It's a bad it's movie. It's a really, really... Um, like, even if you want so bad it's good horror fiction, trust me, it's not worth it. James Corden is 
fine, I guess, but... I watched an interview with James Corden on YouTube about this movie that was the most delightful, like, three minutes of my life. And oh, the question he got from the interviewer was like, okay, final question. If you could go back to the start of your career mm-hmm. and do something differently, yeah. what would you do? Yeah. And he immediately, with no hesitation, goes, wouldn't have done this been Vampire Killers. Just wouldn't have done it. It was a terrible movie. We knew it was terrible when we were making it, but you just don't know how terrible a movie can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that strikes me as correct. Anyway, that's enough of this podcast spent on that movie. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that's more time than they spent thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. There's also a lot of music based on Carmilla. The heavy metal band Cradle of Filth did a song about Carmilla. It was on their EP V Empire <laughs> or Dark Fairy Tales in Palestine. Well, <laughs> I, yeah, look, metal is a time. Yeah, yeah. The song's called Queen of Winter Throned. And I bring this up just because, like, heavy metal bands seem to take themselves very seriously for how ridiculous they are. And it includes, or it begins with the lyrics, Iniquitous, I share Camilla's mask, a gaunt mephitic figure on the black side of the glass. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> That is impressively bad, and I love it. I Yeah, I really appreciate it when metal bands don't take themselves that seriously. There is a Japanese lesbian magazine called Carmilla. Amazing. And I tell you this because I read an interview with one of the creators, and I just really enjoyed it. So she was asked why it was called Carmilla, mm-hmm. and she said... Camilla was erotic, and the storyline focuses on a vampire named Camilla who draws hetero women into the world of love between women. And so we thought, well, that'll work. Plus, it had fueled both our masturbatory fantasies, and that's how the magazine became Camilla. That is very refreshingly frank and honest. Yeah. And I appreciate this human. Yes, it was good. Camilla is in a Doctor Who serial called State of Decay in 1980. It's with Tom Baker's Doctor, in which Camilla briefly admires his companion Romana and Romana finds she has to turn away. Ooh, that sounds great. Yeah. I haven't watched any of Tom Baker and Romana. But oh, really? Yeah, but I really want to because I've heard really good things. Mm. I mean, obviously everyone like is like, oh my god, Tom Baker, great. Yes. But I've also heard really good things about Romana as a character. Mm. So yeah, I do want to watch that at some point. Um, we can watch that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that sounds good. Yes. Uh, and lastly, of course, there is the web series, Carmilla, which I'm sure everyone's been waiting for us to mention this entire time. I'm yep. wearing a t-shirt for it. <laughs> yes, I only noticed this about three quarters of the way through recording, um, <laughs> despite the fact that Eli and I live in the same house and have been hanging out for several hours even before we started recording. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a very observant human being. Yes. Um, um, so you've watched a little bit of this. Yes, so I watched the first 10 or 11 episodes, uh, literally earlier today. Yeah. <laughs> um, on my train home from work. And yeah, it was it was fun. It um, is fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I think that's the best word for it. Yeah, like, I mean, it makes me think a lot of a kind of Night Vale meets Hogwarts mm. kind of vibe where kind of things are going wrong and um, there's lots of stuff going on in the background. Yeah, I really like the, like, single camera format. Yeah, it, they... it is quite fun. I now want to watch more of this. Yeah. I, like, more of both of this specific show and more of that format, because mm-hmm. I know that's also the format for Lizzie Bennet Diaries yeah. as well. Yeah, it um, is. And yeah, I overall think it is actually, like, quite a good adaptation of Carmilla, mm-hmm. and there's not many of those. Yeah, it also very much... I mean, we talked a bit before about to what extent the uh, male characters in the novel are meant to represent a kind of, you know, saviour or whether they're kind of a bit more kind of overbearing and patriarchal. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously the web series kind of falls down on the second 
end of that. Yeah. Where, you know, I mean, even in the first few episodes, obviously, having not watched all of it, I have no idea where this goes, but I assume it's into a more wholesome place than the book. You know, the only men you see in the first few episodes are, like, vaguely well-intentioned but incredibly paternalistic dude bros. I'm interested for you to get up to the bit where we get Carmilla's backstory because the kind of the plot of Carmilla the novella is kind of canon Mm. in this universe. So you should watch more of that. Okay, Um, yeah. But yeah, I really like how it does Laura because I feel like Laura in the original is, like, genuinely quite a curious person. Um, Yeah, definitely. And she does try to assert herself. And I think that people kind of write her off as just, like, a dumb damsel. And I really hate how they do that. Um, Yeah, definitely. Especially because... Yeah, she's so observant. I think is the crew like that. Mm. If I was going to name a characteristic to, that sums up Laura, it is that she is observant. Yeah, and she is constantly making observations about people's behavior, and you know, obviously, it's mostly about Carmilla. Yes. Um, but even in terms of the way that she describes how the other men act and when she's at the ball, and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it definitely strikes me as yes. she is a very observant and astute young woman yes and so i really liked that this setting kind of gave her the chance to do more as a character and really be the star of the show because she deserves it i love her i do like it that it's more of a like ensemble queer cast as opposed to just those two yeah yeah and i mean also the fact that laura's queerness comes out i feel in those first few episodes before she even sort of has any feelings about camilla yes um i mean any positive feelings about camilla Yeah, I don't know the names of these characters very well, but okay. the, her, like, uh, literature tutor? The really Danny. tall one? Yeah, she's Danny? so tall. Yeah, she's so she tall is so tall and beautiful, and <laughs> wow, yeah. This is, um, like, commentary on this web series, like, several years too late. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we, I wish we had made this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I like that it's put it in the setting of a school, and it kind of makes the whole thing about how like all of these other girls are disappearing or whatever or you know in the novel dying Hmm. more like it does more than that what the original does because it kind of you know these girls are disappearing bad things are happening to them on a college campus and no one cares yeah i mean like well that's yeah i mean i mean given like it very much just made me think of in australia how you know last was it last year we had the report on um sexual assault on university campuses i believe that report was released last year um and there was a big deal about that and how you know universities were responding to that and how the report had been um somewhat shaped by the people who were writing it and yeah like i've been there's been a lot of discourse in australia about um the safety of women on campuses yeah um and i think that yeah i was very much watching those first few episodes and being very, very highly aware of what they were going for there. And it was um, quite powerful, interestingly, for, like, you know, two-minute shorts Mm. that were also quite comedic and funny. Yes. Yeah, it does a lot, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, I can't believe that the first full season is now, like, the length of a movie. Yeah, as I said, I've watched 10 episodes, which is maybe 25 minutes. Mm. So that's, you know, an episode of, like, that's that's a sitcom episode. Yeah. And I am now aware of this whole world and, like, you know, 20 different characters who all, like, you know, obviously you mostly get Laura and Carmilla being developed, but, like, it still feels like you've got this whole world going. Yeah. Yeah, I think that brings us to the end of our very first prose fiction episode. 
Yay. Yay. I found this good. I hope that you found this good too. If you want to give us any feedback, you can email us at queerestfact at gmail.com. If you like hate this or love it or can think of any ways in which you'd like it to improve, please do let us know because it will like measurably change how we do things probably. Absolutely. And also if you want to send through suggestions, obviously this gives you a whole new list uh, of suggestions. (laughs) We are particularly interested in any, as Obviously, we are with the historical episodes. We are particularly interested in uh, non-Western literature and film and plays and other forms of media if you have historical queer media. Uh, Apart from the Gmail address, you can also find us on Tumblr, Facebook and Twitter as Queer as Fact. And you can also find us on iTunes. Uh, If you listen to us on iTunes, we'd really, really appreciate it if you left us a review and a rating. It really helps us find more listeners. We'll be back on the 1st of May with our next uh, regular episode talking about the American civil rights activist, lawyer, priest, and author, Paulie Murray. And Eli and I will be back on the 22nd of next month with 1996 Robin Williams movie, The Birdcage. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next time.